Sounds comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden with summertime day and week-long nature explorations for children as well as year-round nature store, lake access, and educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at mainaudubon.org or 989-2591. Support for Talk of the Towns also comes from Table, a farmhouse bistro serving dinner Tuesday through Saturday starting at 5 p.m. Located at 66 Main Street in Blue Hill. More information at farmkitchentable.com. And the time is one minute before 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, if you get a chance, the next time you see the Maine State flag, take a closer look. The flag depicts a farmer, a seafarer, a moose, and a pine tree, all under the North Star. The representatives to the state legislature at the time of its adoption in the early 20th century might have scoffed that we would need to teach students about our environment. Nearly every family had a direct connection to the natural world. In the 21st century, it's evident to many that we need to enrich the ways that students see themselves in relationship to the natural world, hoping to develop an environmental literacy that will serve them in their future education, their careers, and their lives. And this morning we have some wonderful folks in the studio and one by phone who can help us understand what developing environmental literacy might look like for Maine. Glad to welcome Kara Wildrick, who is the director of the uh, Director of Education for Maine Audubon. Welcome to you, Kara. Thank you very much. And we do me- mention that uh, uh, Maine Audubon is an underwriter. We're glad to have uh, Maine Audubon support as well as all of our other underwriters and sponsors. Um, uh, Kevin Duran is uh, with the Maine Forest Service and the Department of Conservation. Welcome to you, Kevin. Thank you. Nice to be here. Linda Woodward is um, at the uh, Audubon Scarborough Marsh Nature Center, but she represents today the Maine Environmental <coughs> Education Association. Welcome to you, Linda. I'm glad to be here. And by phone, joining us um, from the Department of, Conserv- uh, Department of Education um, is Anita Bernhardt. Good morning, Anita. Welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be able to join you. What I'll do is, is ask each of you to tell us a little bit about your organization and your role in the organization to give our, reader, uh, our listeners a context for um, as we talk about environmental, environmental literacy. We'll start with Kara. Uh, tell us a little bit about Maine Audubon. Uh, Maine Audubon is a 150-year-old statewide conservation organization. We focus on conservation, education, and advocacy. We have about 15,000 supporters and members, um, 12 sanctuaries, properties around the state, and four centers where people can come and learn and visit. Great, great. And Fields Pond is one of those. Yes, our closest one here right. to this listening area. Great. Um, Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, your connection with uh, 
Maine Forest Service. Okay, be glad to. Um, I am the natural science educator with the Maine Forest Service, and the Maine Forest Service is part of the Department of Conservation. And many of our listeners may know of the state parks. We have over 40 state parks and national historic sites across the state. Uh, we Maine is the most heavily forested by percentage area in, in or state in the nation. We have close to 18 million acres of forest lands. So the Department of Conservation, which is made up of forestry, geology, and natural areas, parks, and the Land Use Regulation Commission, um, we, we have uh, many reasons to participate in this environmental literacy plan for the state of Maine. Mm, great. Um, going now to Linda Woodward, uh, tell us a little bit about the Maine Environmental Education Association. Um, that association has been around for a number of years. Yes, it has. Um, we're a group of individuals and organizations, and we facilitate and promote environmental education in the state of Maine. Um, we share resources and information. Every year we have a conference. Um, we have a listserv that people can get on and find out some more information and, um, and a website. Mm. So, And we've been around for a while now, as you said, 1982, but uh, we have over about 300 people, that supporters. And your um, members and supporters are both classroom teachers and kind of field educators like yourself. Exactly. And we also have people from different departments in the state of Maine. Like we have a Department of Environmental <coughs> Protection and universities around the state, as you said, um, non-traditional and traditional educators. Great. And now to Anita Bernhardt uh, with the Department of Education. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the Department of Education's role. Great. I am Anita Bernhardt, as you said, and I'm the State Science and Technology Specialist for the Department. Um, the Department of Education is a branch of the government, and um, the State Science and, and Technology Specialist really um, helps to guide educational policy related to science education, as well as assessments, and to help um, support partnerships throughout the state that will uh, assist students in learning about science. Um, toward that end, we um, support both things that will... Uh, support student learning directly as well as professional development efforts that will support teachers in helping students to learn. And I suppose part of that work is working with people around curriculum. Um, yes, although curriculum, um, as I'm sure you are aware, in the state of Maine is, a, is, is locally determined, um, but we help uh, folks to understand our state standards that can assist them in, in uh, doing a better job locally. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, how we got to this point. Um, why do you believe that environmental literacy is, is so important? Let's start with Kara and see what others might say about uh, why we are in the place we are. Well, we're certainly seeing less youth out um, exploring in their backyards, in their local state park, in their state parks or local parks, um, local recreation areas. There's just less participation for a number of reasons. Um, <coughs> And there are a lot of uh, side effects or results from that lack of participation, including obesity and um, not understanding how systems work or even scientific process. So um, that's concerning. The other piece is that the 21st century is going to require new sets of skills and new sets of understanding and knowledge um, in order for us to be a successful state and have successful communities. So everything from energy and energy security to health concerns, including asthma and attention disorders, um, transportation, um, fishing and forest industries and, and their sustainability for the long run. So that, that notion that the state flag still re reflects 
who we are as a state in some ways. Um, we're based in a natural resource. We have a lot of natural resources, and yet not everybody kind of understands and appreciates those natural resources. Right. There's a, a lack of connection, certainly uh-huh. um, emotionally, physically, and intellectually. Now, when I was a kid, um, I can remember my mom saying something like, get outside. <laughs> Don't come back until supper time. Does that happen anymore? Are, are parents telling their kids to get outside? I think, unfortunately, sometimes they're a little afraid to do that. Mm. Um, we work with a lot of different populations, and like some people from Portland are immigrants, and they're really afraid to let their children out the door. They they come in at Newton at supper time, and they just lock the doors and they keep them in. But even other people are just don't know what's out there, and unfortunately, there are problems in our society where you wouldn't want your child to just be outdoors by themselves. So I think it's a little bit of a fear of the unknown, what, mm-hmm. what is out there. Mm-hmm. Kevin, how do you see um, the current situation? Well, I, uh, a lot of times you, you hear just the negative aspects of kids, children are not going outside anymore. And that isn't necessarily true. Their children still do go outside. I, I would agree with Linda. There, there may be some fears surrounded surrounding going outside and there's certainly more structured activities than many years ago that may limit the amount of time that children have to go outside um, you know it, it, it could be they're being going from music lessons to organize structured sports um, but from my experience there's you know behind my house there's a there's probably a hundred acres of forest lands and and I see kids out there I, I see kids playing in the street and and it is reminiscent of when I was a child mm-hmm. and uh, you know maybe not to the extent and as you know Linda touched on when when I was a kid I remember my parents saying okay just be back by six o'clock tonight or five o'clock when mm-hmm. we're going to have supper. And they really didn't, they were so busy, they really didn't know what we were doing. Maybe they should have been aware <laughs> of a little bit of what we were doing. But um, so so personally, it, it's, it's not that children are not going outside at all, but I think it's the extent of what they're going outside and what they're doing. And parents um, are a key factor in that. If kids learn from their parents and parents aren't outside because they might be working two jobs or three jobs, um, that affects how kids look at, at the world. I mean, I, I um, had the luxury of having a, a, a parent who was a teacher. And so we had summers that were relatively unstructured, and he brought us to um, state parks and national parks, and, and uh, that was part of our growing up. I'm not sure that's always the case anymore. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah. I think um, there are opportunities to go outside. We could take advantage of more of those, and having that free exploration time helps kids to develop interactions amongst themselves as well as their own development. Mm-hmm. Anita, how are you seeing some of this uh, current context? Well, we, uh, we've pointed a lot to the kinds of experiences that kids might have outside of school. Um, when I think about environmental literacy, I, I, think about, um, how, I think about these kinds of goals. How can we ad- enhance learning and problem solving, particularly in, in science? How can we help our students to be responsible, engaged citizens? And how can we... Um, graduate individuals that have the knowledge and skills to really address threats to health, economic development, biodiversity, national security that arise from understanding environmental stresses. And so if I think about those goals and I think about how engaging it is to be outside, I think that um, interacting with the environment provides a really authentic context for learning in a really engaging 
context for learning, and that's what, from my perspective, is so valuable about um, supporting environmental literacy. And over the last few years, um, we've probably seen school districts um, starved for um, resources, and they're less able to get kids outside um, in, in any kind of uh, situation. Is that true? Well, I, I, I think if you're talking about field trips um, to go away, but I think that there are plenty of opportunities that we can um, point to that get kids outside on the right on the grounds of our own schools. There's outside, whether it's an urban outside or a, or a rural outside, and um, some really exciting projects that um, are happening in the state right now that support teachers in bringing kids to, into those environments to learn. Great. Um, uh, one of the, the, the influences on this whole um, idea was a book called Last Child in the Woods. Um, how Each of you probably have read that. I know um, um, Sheridan Steele, uh, superintendent of Acadia National Park, when he helped convene a group to look at that, he made sure everybody had read, read the book. Um, how has that influenced some of your work and your thinking? Um, was that something that just brought together what you already knew, or was there some new insights? Were there some new insights in that? Linda? Um, for me, it just, it really was, yes. I mm. mean, I just read that. It was like, it was sort of put in words what I already knew. Mm -hmm. And it was just very exciting. Um, I work with students and we take them outside and we do programs. And one instance, we had a child that was a psychological mute. And he spoke for the first time on one of our nature explorations. Mm. And it just opened doors and unlocks doors for people. And, you know, he talks in his book about, um, attention deficit disorder and how that is so much less if you take the students outside. Mm. So for me, it was just a real, yes, that's the way it is. And he said that his audiences um, from all different walks of life really can relate to his book. Mm. That when he talks about the importance of the treehouse and that favorite area, he said he had people in tears remembering back to that favorite spot that they had, but maybe their children don't have right now. Mm. Great. Any other reflections on yeah, what, Richard Lewis' book? Yeah. When, when, when I read the book, I, I was struck by the, this. those of us that have been involved with environmental and conservation education for many years. This was just a re, reaffirmation of maybe what I knew at that time. But as, as Linda mentioned, I think there was a, a, a secondary audience in there of the parents. And if it w I, I was pleased that there was the recollection, the, the, if, if a parent would read that or maybe hear some of the research, it may rekindle some of the passion that they had. So therefore, they would be more apt to bring their child outside mm. and do something outside. Mm. Um, nature deficit disorder uh, or de deficit, uh, excuse me, they, anybody that's been outside with a group of maybe eighth graders out in the woods, you, you, you wonder if they do become more calm out there. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure about that, but, <laughs> but you do find um, there is a calming effect. And, and I think, you know, Kara or, or um, Anita could talk about the, the effect on the K-12 education, but as an informal educator, that's what I've experienced. Mm -hmm. 
I'll remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning on WERU. We're talking about developing environmental literacy for Maine. And in the studio, you've just heard from Kevin Duran of the Maine Forest Service, Department of Conservation. Um, we also have Linda Woodward, who is with the Maine Environmental Education Association. Kara Wildrick is the Director of, the, of Education at Maine Audubon. And Anita Bernhardt is with us by phone uh, from the Department of Education. Later on, we'll open up our phone lines and you can participate as well. But first, I'd like to know a little bit more, uh, perhaps starting with um, Linda, about the history of environmental education. It seems like there's kind of a merging of, 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 of common interests here, because environmental education has been around for a while, and this be then begins to combine with the notion of getting kids outside in environmental literacy. Definitely. Well, I, as I said before, um, MIA, the Maine Environmental Education Association, started in 1982. And people were just really realizing we have to focus on environmental education as a separate thing from science or other um, curriculums. And so Dean Bennett was one of the people that was really involved in this. And he taught um, education at the University of Maine at Farmington. So he was very, very um, important in starting this off. Also, um, Don Hudson, who was the director of Chiwanke, was very much involved. So just a group of people came together and said, we need to start something that really focuses and directs environmental education in Maine. So then they started having conferences every year, networking with people, and um, so it's really important to make those connections. Mm -hmm. So this notion of things coming together, um, how are some of the rest of you seeing you know, that earlier movement with what's happening right now? What do you, what do you see the strands coming together? Um, Kevin, you've been in involved in doing this kind of educational work. Um, has, has this picked up the pace a little bit? The... Uh, w would you rephrase that? Yeah, uh, just the, has this new interest, for instance, in Richard Louv's book and, right. and the governor's efforts and so on, is that picked up the pace in terms of, of focusing on environmental education? Yeah. It, it, it seems to have. Um, if, if you look at the governor's initiative, take it outside, uh, right there. Now the um, Department of Conservation has a take it outside website where anybody can jump on that website, see what activities are, are going on. I think it has formalized and, and has increased the offerings. And, and maybe rather than an organization, um, speaking for the Department of Conservation, rather than just doing something, we promote it a little bit better so people do have an opportunity to find out about it and then they can participate in it more. Mm. So I think there, there is an added um, opportunity or added incentive towards what is what is available. Mm -hmm. And Kara, uh, Audubon has just a long and rich history of doing education, getting people, um, kids and, and adults outside. Um, what do you see as different uh, in the last two or three years? I think we're starting to see a convergence of um, groups that, groups are starting to talk together that used to speak only in their own groups. Mm -hmm. um, we have the faith community getting involved, um, healthcare type community getting involved, energy industry is involved. Um, the environmental literacy piece seems to have brought together a lot of um, folks that thought they might have had a little bit different interests and in seeing our commonalities. Um, and it's, it's really fantastic to be real, uh, realizing and starting to all pull in the same direction. Um, we had been pulling in similar directions already, but now we realize our shared interests. Mm. Well, let's talk about this uh, notion of a, a state plan and, and, and what the components are. Anita, I think you can help us with, with that. W where was the impetus to actually create a plan to, to deal with this in a little more organized way? Start with you, Anita, and, and then we'll see what other, other yeah. guests might have. 
the the impetus comes um, from the federal level um, in large part um, because it provides a, a pool of, of resources, dollars, to be able to support environmental literacy plans. So, um, once once states have them, they can um, um, uh, subscri- uh, submit an application to be able to receive funding. So there are about $500 million that are, are, are slated to, to be available to states over a five-year period. Um, but in order to be part of the application process, you need to have an approved environmental literacy plan, and there are a couple of different components to it. Um, uh, for starters, the state will have to... Um, describe how it will keep track of environmental literacy, both by identifying content standards and um, describing the relationship of the environmental literacy plan to graduation requirements. Um, And then a description of the professional development that it will use to support two parts of teacher understanding, both um, the uh, subject matter knowledge content around related to environmental literacy and also um, how to teach, or as we like to say, the pedagogy of of how to instruct really in those, those ideas. And then third, how will the state support that plan? Um, what kinds of collaborations will it have to be able to support teachers' understandings around environmental literacy and integrate it into the, um, the standards that we have? So it seems as though what, what people are saying is that a lot of this already existed in, in lots of different camps and, and uh, with the, the, the longer history of Maine Environmental Education Association and, and teacher interest and so on, this, this plan kind of brings things together and says, yeah, this is, this is who we are and what we're doing. Anita? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that that's true. I think that what it does is it, it makes connections between we've I've been working with a group of teachers in Portland over the last couple of days, and we've been having some of these very same conversations. How do teachers um, uh, do activities with kids that are environmentally related and weave them tightly into a storyline in the classroom that gets at concepts and that helps us to understand what's happening in the world around us? That's the magic. And environmental <coughs> literacy is a, and environmental education is a great context when when a science teacher does environmental education, I see that as just really good science teaching. <laughs> Great. Um, Kevin, can you help us understand what how we d- you define environmental literacy? What, what are we actually talking about? Sure. It, the, um, the, the actual term environmental literacy was was coined, I believe, in the 1960s. And it's, it really just represents uh, environmental education strategies and goals that have won significant endorsements by the formal K-12 mm. world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then, as Anita says, the, the real magic happens when um, teachers and kids, and whether that's informal teachers and, or, or formal teachers, um, get outside, um, learn about their environment, what, what's happening out there, whether it's in the classroom um, and, and the and the space right outside or in some wonderful space like Scarborough or Fields Pond, and they have an experience. And um, that experience causes, I think, any student, student of any age, to be curious. And from that curiosity then kind of reinvigorates the learning learning process. Is that a good description of of how you see this happening? I I, I think that's a a very good description. And and as Anita said, it's 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 based in you know, you know, good teaching. If if you're outside with students, you're doing experiential learning and you're connecting with science concepts and you're talking about systems and it could be the forest ecosystem, the the wetland, it really doesn't matter what, but you're connecting and if somebody is outside with their students, they are tying it in with science concepts, but it's also inquiry based. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, 
obviously, um, wherever the impetus comes from, whether it's because there's some federal dollars involved or because a teacher says, I want to do a better job of connecting my kids, what, you know, what, what are the outcomes you're looking for? Carrie, you started out by thinking about you know, even policy kinds of things or health-related things. What are the outcomes that you're hoping for from a better environmental literacy among um, both students and, and uh, adults? I think we're looking at a, a few different levels. Um, everything from healthy children who know how to take care of their body and understand where food comes from and that exercise is important um, to a community level that um, different players in, the, in a community or a town or a city know how they're all interconnected um, to the state. How does the state have a robust economy? How do we continue our natural resource industries how do we uh, decrease healthcare costs? How do we <laughs> mm -hmm. the list goes on and on? Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like there's concentric circles that just mm. keep going that connects everything. So it's, that, that seems like a, a really wonderful, enlivened education rather than learning the three R's. What's the difference? But you know, is is this a, a, a difference that we're talking about that tries to bring things together that have been separate? Um, Anita, you said a good science teacher um, doing environmental education is good science. I think, I think it can be. Again, I, again, I'm going to point to this idea that there are concepts in science and there, there can be activities in the environment. Uh, the, the magic happens when you can really tightly connect those so that students see the relationship between those science concepts, those outdoor situations, those environmental um, questions that we have. And they, they have the ability to not only know the facts, but to know the issues and to be able to connect them so that in the future, when um, they're a citizen in the community, they will um, be able to bring to bear the right information to, to, make, to make decisions about their communities. And this seems really consistent with, with Maine's learning results, the policy that says these are the outcomes we want for all students. This seems really consistent with some of um, that, that earlier work. Uh, we we hope so. Yes, <laughs> that's the intent. <laughs> Good. So we're not reinventing something here by by calling a having a plan for environmental literacy. We're pulling things together that already um, have existed, but we're focusing on them in, in a better way. I think you make a very important point. We're really trying to solidify some some. Um, some goals and some um, hopes that we've had for a long time in this state, and um, we're formalizing them in the context of an environmental literacy plan so that we can reach um, federally to get um, dollars to support those efforts. Mm. You said, Anita, that you've been working with a group of teachers over the last few days and probably um, other times as well. What questions or concerns do they bring forward when um, you say, what, we're working on an environmental literacy plan? What, what are the teachers' concerns? Um, there weren't any concerns. They were very excited, actually, mm. um, about... Uh, how you know how they could become involved and um, and what kind of supports will be made available? I, to be to be honest, there there were no concerns expressed by the group of teachers when we were chatting about that. Um, but but really um, uh, questioning about you know w what would that mean in terms of what might be available to help support them as professionals. I, I mean, the teachers I've talked with um, sometimes get overwhelmed by um, the the burdens that society places on them in terms of, of getting through a curriculum in the classroom. So um, are they seeing this as an add-on or an integrated? Linda, do you have some comments about that? Yeah, I was just going to say that that's the thing. It's not an add-on. Mm. That you have to, if, once you tell the teachers and show the teachers that they can use this to integrate their curriculum and make it much easier for them. Mm. I've done a lot of teacher workshops, and when I show them, here's this wonderful thing, environmental education, you can use it to teach all your subjects. 
projects and they're like, oh, great. And it actually makes it easier for them. It's not an add-on. But I think sometimes that's an initial reaction. So it is good to explain that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, part of this, um, the, the federal money that we're talking about might um, do more professional development to give um, teachers some of those experiences so they see how this all might work. That's exactly what it's intended for. Great, great. So um, where are we in the process? Um, where You're working on the plan now. Has it been adopted yet? Um, where are we in that process? Kara, can you start us off with that? Sure. We have been working actually for a couple years um, as a interested group of environmental educators, but with starting to work with other uh, aspects in our communities. And just want to acknowledge that Senator Snow and Senator Collins and Representative Michaud and Representative Pingree have all signed on as co-sponsors of this legislation, have been very supportive um, and understand the sort of trickle effects that will affect the big picture of Maine. So we've been working with them for the past couple of years. Um, in the more recent, in May, we did four community dialogues around the state where the public was invited to attend and give their input. What should be included in a plan? What would be most meaningful? What are the resources that are currently available in Maine? And where are the resources that might be missing that we need to bring to the state? Um, so we have pulled those folks together um, and we're now sort of sifting through the data. Um, our next steps include gathering input um, online. There were many people that couldn't attend our sessions around the state, and so we have an online forum for people to participate um, at the Maine Audubon website. Um, and then, and they can listen to the audio of one of our sessions and get the sense of this bigger picture. Uh, we also are pulling together an advisory committee that will be helping us in the writing and drafting of the plan, which we hope will go um, to the Department of the Department of Ed. Will be writing and submitting in November or approving in November, I should say. Um, and then we're waiting uh, for the legislation in D.C. to go through its process in Congress, which we hope would pass uh, this fall or early winter. Great. Anita, I'm going to let you go in just a minute, but I wanted to see if you have any final comments. And you can always listen um, online, uh, www.weru.org, as anybody could um, if they weren't in radio distance. And, and feel free to give us a call back, and I'll list those phone numbers in a minute. But Anita um, Bernhardt from Maine Department of Education, um, any, any uh, thoughts that you might leave us with? Well, um, just I think that this is a very important collaboration. We have four um, significant organizations in the state working together to develop an environmental literacy plan um, that is an education department policy. And I think partnering with Maine Audubon, Department of Conservation, Maine Environmental Education Association strengthens the kind of policy that the Department of Education can create. And so uh, we are very grateful to... Um, those organizations for being willing to uh, assist out with um, with this work, uh, and um, you know we we hope that we can our intent is to create a, a a sane policy that will will really strengthen support for student learning in the state. Great, thanks so much for being with us, taking time to to uh, help us understand this this uh, great topic. Thank you, Anita Bernhardt. Thank from you. Maine Department of Education. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. This is a call-in program. We have some guests in the studio, but you're part of this um, exercise in, in uh, environmental literacy, uh, literacy in general. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. 
That's 1-866-625-9378 or 469-0500. We're talking with Kara Wildrick of the Maine Audubon uh, Association, um, Kevin Duran of uh, Maine Forest Service, and Linda Woodward is with the Maine Environmental Education uh, Association. As we talk about environmental literacy in Maine, I'd, I'd like to ask um, each of you to um, maybe provide some examples of, of what you've seen, what you've participated in that really works well. Um, Kevin, uh, you're... Sure. <laughs> get us started. I, 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 I would be happy to. We, we've many really good examples of, um, you know, what's happening right now in Maine. I, I, I think one of the uh, better ones connected to the forest is the China School. Hmm. Um, a number of years ago, the uh, an industrial forester worked with... Um, the China schools and they, they established, I don't know how many acres it is, maybe a 60 acre outdoor classroom learning environment where students can go out and they can explore ponds, they can explore forests, they can explore many different ecosystems outside in, right in their own backyard. And, and I think as either, uh, I think Kara mentioned or, or, or maybe Linda did, a lot of times it's it's helping the, the teachers connect with what's right in their backyard. Uh, in addition to the individual teachers in the school district use, using the China School Forest, there's also community days, a um, community forest day where everybody, parents, children, uh, formal, non-formal educators meet and they have a series of activities and fun-filled. I mean, they're they're educational, but they're also it's a it's a fun-filled day where the entire school. I, I may be off with the number. I want to say four or five hundred students mm-hmm. are actually out in the woods, learning, doing, uh, doing experiential learning right out in their backyard. That's great, and and they didn't have to get in a school bus to do it. That's right. They <laughs> they they can walk right back there, but uh-huh. the the. China School is just one example. Many schools around the state have a similar resources right out there, right out of their backyard. And uh, you know, I, I personally, I, I hope that through this effort, we connect some of those teachers and some of the school districts, which with the natural environment right around their school yard. Well, it seems like you know, in addition to um, the more typical things that bring um, parents and uh, students and teachers together, like a sports event, um, you're saying that there may be other kind of community-wide interest um, in their backyards. Most definitely. Great. Um, uh, Linda, how about you in terms of your work at, at Scarborough Marsh uh, Nature Center for Audubon? What kinds of experiences do you help either kids or adults or teachers with so that they kind of get this, this notion of, of the, the connection they have with their environment? Well, Scarborough is really lucky to have the biggest, the largest salt marsh in Maine, 3,100 acres. And it really is important to the teachers and the students and to the citizens of um, Scarborough. And so they really have adopted it. So we see that on all levels. Um, every third grader comes to the marsh. Um, the sixth graders come to the marsh. So they're really, really involved. We last year did a study on Phragmites, which is an invasive plant in the marsh. So the high school students became involved and went out and had GPS units on their back and were monitoring that. So it's just an example of how at many different levels around um, a town, you know, you can, you know, 
just uh, be enhanced in the marsh and find different ways to uh, study it. Can you remember any uh, particular stories of, of, of a child that says, hmm, I'm getting something different? You've mentioned already the, um, the emotionally mute student that spoke for the first time. Other, other reactions that students have had? Well, I think, too, it, sometimes I've had teachers comment, and they'll be like, oh, you've got to watch this student, you know, because he's really, he can be real cut up, and you might want to be, and then at the end of the program, you know, they're there for a couple of hours, and they're really involved, and they're getting into it, and they go, wow, you know, he was great, but I think that, you know, too, just letting the students outside and getting out there and doing it's just, you know, so much easier for them than in a classroom. Mm. So I can't, I'm trying to remember one specific <laughs> incident, right. but it's a... just, you know, just seeing the light bulb go on and the excitement and hearing the comments, oh, do we have to go now? Can mm. we just stay here all day? Mm. You know, mm. so it's just really getting the students engaged. Kara, mm-hmm. examples that you come to mind? Well, I don't think of a specific child, but I think, oh, probably every week we have some youth participants say, wow, do you live here? Do you live in this wild place? Do you get to stay here? Can I stay here? Do we have to get back on the bus? So we're often hearing uh, sparks of energy. And we are not with students long enough to see where it always goes, but we see the the fire start to light, which is incredibly rewarding. Mm. I just read an article in the Christian Science Monitor about the the camping experience, um, the traditional summer camp, and Maine has many, many summer camps. That um, provides an opportunity for many students, many kids, to have that extended experience. Are are the ACA, is the the Camping Association part of this this effort um, by any chance? The the leader of the Maine Youth Camping uh, Foundation and Maine Youth Camping Association, which emerged, um, I believe did attend one of our dialogues and has been in communication. Mm. Um, so I think of our own kind of cooperative extensions, Tanglewood, um, your work um, with, with youth, you must see that extended period of time in the woods <laughs> or outside making a difference. Definitely. Yeah. Um, getting somebody from a place of discomfort, whether they're two years old or 102 years old, um, to a place of feeling comfortable and confident to then explore and have sort of the mental space to be curious. Um, is It's a huge step, but you really can move somebody through that process in a relatively short amount of time if you have that um, one-on-one experience with them. Mm. I'll list our phone numbers one more time. Um, 1-866-625-9378. 1-866-625-9378. Give us a call as we talk about environmental literacy. Perhaps you've got a story to tell about um, your awakening in the out of doors, um, uh, your connection, um, or maybe your child's connection. Um, what questions do you have for our guests in the studio? Kara Wildrick of Maine Audubon, Kevin Duran of Maine Forest Service, and Linda Woodward <coughs> representing the Maine Environmental Education Association. Kevin? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to comment on the, the one student or the, the, the student that comes to mind. And um. I'm with my colleagues here. I, I, not one person comes to mind, but what I do find is years after the fact, I, I do have adults now coming up saying that they went into a certain profession, they made a connection that was based upon something that maybe wasn't even that profound at a young age. It could be a small patch of woods for me. It was about a two-acre patch of woods behind my house, hmm. and I... I became involved with forestry and then environmental education. And a lot of it had to do with that one experience. And so as, as Kara mentioned, it's, it's hard to ascertain what kind of effect we're having to ask somebody at the end of the day, was this right. profound for you? We, we don't know, but 
we we do know, and the research does support that a, a deep connection will manifest itself in many ways. Mm. Carol, what was your spark? How did you get involved in this work? What um, uh, Kevin mentioned his backyard, but what, what did it for you? I think it was also my backyard in suburban California, um, where I was certain I had the tallest redwood tree on the planet, um, and I would go and visit it daily and make sure it was doing well, um, and then climbing into some other uh, liquid amber trees. But it was really the very local connection, which always reminds me that helping teachers understand the resources that are right outside their classroom, even if they're in the most urban part of Maine, there are cracks in the sidewalk where there are things growing. There are amphibians that will cross a busy street um, there's nature right outside your window. You don't have to go to Baxter State Park in order to experience nature. You can start to understand your connections just by following where does your water come from, where does your trash go when you're done. Um, so there's always a way to connect with nature, even suburban Sacramento, California, or <laughs> uh, the wilds of Maine. <laughs> and, and Linda, what, what, what was your start? How did you get interested in this, this kind of work? Well, my father tells me that I went camping at the age of two months. Mm. And, you know, I think that really was my start. I just always was out camping. My parents were both educators. And so um, I, I had the summers off. And mm -hmm. so it was wonderful. We were always outside. But I think it's the willow tree that was in my yard. I mean, I just lived in that tree, and I made a house in it. And I just, that tree was so important to me. Mm. Was That was one of the main things. But I think... As you talked about parents and the importance of parents in getting the children outside, it, that really was the thing for me, I think, was just seeing my parents out there. Mm -hmm. Kara? There, there's some pretty clear research, actually, um, done by Dr. Louise Chala around what are some of the important sparks in developing in a young person for them to have more of an understanding connection with nature as an adult. Um, and those include an active adult in the child's life. It doesn't have to be a parent, but some sort of active adult in their life that either helps them learn about nature or gives them the access to go do the exploration. Um, some sort of threat to something that they love. So it could have been Linda's willow. If something had threatened her willow uh, tree, that could have automatically, mm. you know, kicked something in for her. Um, time connecting outside is just that free play time, the looking at bugs, the um, does not have to be the profound experience at that age, but they're actually exposed to it. So, so th those are some of the key pieces that the research shows. People will, they may, as a teenager or a college student, move away from nature, but they'll have an understanding and they'll have a relationship. Mm. As you get out and about um, the state with some of these listening forums um, in the last several months, what were some of the things that you heard from um, citizens, uh, teachers, um, Policymakers, um, what were some of the things you heard, Kevin? Do you remember any of the the things that you, themes that you were beginning to pick up? Well, I, I I think the predominant theme for me was everybody was happy that there was a formalized effort hmm. going on in the state of Maine, and and I the folks that I did talk to, um, they, uh, collaboration also came up. Th this is not. Anita mentioned that there are four organizations developing this plan, but it's truly a statewide effort with, with many collaborators that are part of this. So that, that's what I was hearing. I, I was hearing a lot of passion at, each, at, at these sessions and the feeling that they, they, they felt honored to be part of the process. But as as Kara mentioned, there are, for those that did not participate, there are other ways that they can hmm. uh, 
chime in on, mm -hmm. on the effort. Carol, what themes do you remember? Um, I think uh, I heard a lot, teachers wanting more support, wanting more resources. Um, the, the No Child Left Inside legislation is, does gear the funding mostly towards professional development of uh, public school teachers. So um, they're trying to address that need, and that need be was re emphasized, which was fantastic to hear, okay, we're trying to address mm. a real need that's here in Maine, not just in other states. Um, I th the other piece was connecting schools with resources, hmm. that there are many places that provide uh, nature experiences or recreation experiences or science experiences, but that um, there wasn't an awareness about the, the wealth of resources in this state. Mm -hmm. Linda, were you part of these forums? Do you remember oh, any yes. themes? Yeah. You know, they went first, so they mm -hmm. got them all. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I agree that um, the whole resource piece was really important. And I do want to take this opportunity to just make a little plug here, and that is that on the Maine Environmental Education website, which is meeassociation.org, we have what we call the MEEK, which is a Maine Environmental Education Guide. And in that are resources um, for people. There's places that they can go. And it's this wonderful guide that they can download right off our website. Mm. So you know, just trying to make people aware of these different opportunities that actually are already out there. Great. Um, so when they're feeling overwhelmed, they have a place to go. Mm -hmm. I'll list our phone number one more time. Perhaps everyone's out enjoying nature and they didn't <laughs> take their radio with them. But uh, we'd be happy to have your call, 1-866-625-9378 or locally, 469-0500. As we talk about developing environmental literacy in Maine with our guest, Linda Woodward, who you just heard from, from the Maine Environmental Education Association, Kevin Duran from Maine Forest Service, and Kara Woldrick of uh, Maine Audubon. She's the director of education there. I do believe we have a call coming in, but we'll wait and see that. Um, ha have you had any detractors, um, people who aren't supportive of, of um, what, you're, what you're doing here? I don't know of any. Um, people are usually very supportive. I haven't personally received any emails. I've sent out, the Maine Environmental Education Association sent out a lot of the information about it. And so, you know, I haven't personally received any. I don't know if the other two people here have, but... Well, we'll see what our listeners say, too. Um, we'll go to a phone call. Thanks for calling. Uh, give us your name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your um, com question or comment. Hi, my name is Beverly. Um, I'm a retired English teacher living on an island off of Bass Harbor right now, but I used to teach in New Hampshire. Um, I taught mostly 7th and 8th grade. And um, I did units on wolves, and I incorporated a lot of environmental education into my poetry with kids because I had um, gotten a master's in environmental education in the 70s. Mm. But there were lots of teachers who would come up to me and say, I don't understand. Are you a science teacher? <laughs> I thought you were an English teacher. I thought you talked about dangling participles. <laughs> it was just amazing how, how closed these people seem to be to the notion of getting to the same kind of ends through different means. And I just wanted to comment on that. I was wondering if any other listeners might have had the same experiences. And, and I just want to say that um, um, years after teaching my Julie of the Wolves unit, I would go see wolves at Audubon in New Hampshire when they would do presentations. And I would inevitably see my grown students 
and they would see me and say, hey, you know, and they and I'd say, what are you doing here? You know, don't you have better things to do? Aren't you in college? Don't you have a job? And they said, are you kidding? Would we miss this, you know, after being in your class? And um, I just want to say that environmental education seems to be for everyone. And one more thing, it's, it's kind of a question, and I can take the comment off the air for sure. What sort of opportunities might exist for people like me, for example, or retired people to get involved with environmental education? Because I'm really ready to do something, you know. Um, if you could just address the issue of bringing more people in to the whole process of it, because it's really wonderful. Beverly, thanks so much for your call, and, and I'm sure we'll find a way for you to continue <laughs> to participate and inspire um, new students. Um, well, I'm on the website right now, so I'll just um, okay. <laughs> keep checking it out. Okay, thanks great. very much for the program today. Let's, let's take the second call and see how these things might blend together. Go ahead with your question or comment. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, that would be great. Hi. Yeah, I'm Beth, and I'm calling from Belfast. Um, I work with uh, college students I'm, I'm, um, in higher ed, and I am specifically working in training a next generation of the, the non-formal and informal educators. Um, I work some with the, the, um, the naturalists in our degree program, but I'm, I especially am focused on experiential education and adventure education. And I think the thing that I'm, I'm wondering about in your integrated curriculum, I'm wondering, are you, are you using a discovery learning model? Are you using place-based um, uh, aspects to how you're putting things together? And then I'm wondering if there's room for um, thinking about that kind of life skill or asset building with the students beyond, beyond the, um, the environmental uh, education and environmental content, the ability to bring the students together to work with each other or to work with a community partner, um, I think furthers that personal investment for the child and that sense of accomplishment and ownership. And I was just, I was wondering beyond an environmental content, are there, are there pieces like that, the, the students collaboration or the student work groups that are being intentionally integrated into what you're doing? Great, great question, Beth. Thanks for your call, and, and uh, we'll uh, see if we've got some responses from our, our guests in the studio. Thank you. And I'll list the phone number one more time, one 625 9378 if you'd like to participate in t talking about environmental literacy for Maine. Let's start with uh, Beverly's question about um, how might someone like she, a retired teacher who's had some experience, how might they get involved in this, this effort to do environmental education? Literacy. Well, I think there's, um, this is Linda, and I think there's several opportunities. Um, if she's down my way, I'd have her as a volunteer in a second. Mm. Um, but um, So a Katie National Park might be exactly. a place that, that if she um, has connections to Mount Desert Island, she could check also, out. Also, I'm sure schools would just love to have her help in the classroom mm -hmm. and, you know, take students outside. Some of the, the teachers might not have that... Um, capability or you know comfort level so this would be really wonderful for mm. them for any school system but and I'll I think of the the, uh, the senior colleges too um, oh, they're definitely. wonderful opportunities to do kind of let's think about this topic together and um, uh, Beverly's experience with literature 
um, and linking might be a really fascinating topic for, for them. She might be a volunteer teacher. We've got one more call. I'll take that in just a minute. Um, let's come back to Beth's question about how um, environmental literacy might link to some of the life skills that, Carrie, you talked about at the beginning of the program. Well, I do want to tell Beverly real quickly that if she wants to see some live wolves in Falmouth on um, October 18th at Gilson Farm Audubon Center, we will have some of those live owls. I think they might have been some of the same ones that she saw when she was in New Hampshire, so wanted to let her reconnect with her pals. Um, but Beth asked some great questions. Um, the Environmental Literacy Plan will not be a curriculum. It will not be a prescription. It won't be a recipe. Um, we have local control here in the state of Maine around curriculum. Uh, there will be possibly some suggested trainings for educators. There may be some funding for field trips. We will also create some models, suggested models of, of ways that people could approach education, and that might include place-based education, service learning, citizen science, where students are getting involved in their communities because it's not just around environment, but it's about real-world context for learning. And so you can create a real-world context for learning in a forest, or you could create it downtown. Or in a garden. We've had um, guests on, the, on previous shows talking about the local foods movement and the connections between local foods, or local schools, and local food. So that's a, a great example. So it sounds like this is an approach, um, and that the integration of this leads to lots of different life skills, not just knowledge about one's environment. Right. The policy end of things may require that students spend a week outside um, in the curriculum or that the teachers are exposed to environmental education training. It does not have to be a heavy-handed, you know, everybody will do this. Um, mm. That's not the intention at all. Great. 1-866-625-9378. We do have another caller. If you'd give us your uh, first name and the town you're calling from, that would be great. Go ahead with your question or comment. Um, my name is Carol, and I live in um, Blue Hill, but I am um, take the Bar Harbor. And um, if the person living near, I think she lives near Tremont, will get this copy of the Bar Harbor Times that tells about the Tremont Consolidated School taking their 6th and 7th uh, graders out on the Bass Harbor Marsh, which goes right beside their school. And they were lent some kayaks. And they took all these kids out, and their um, science teacher apparently um, leads new science teacher beginning next year has led kids on lots of outdoor things. And I'm sure that they would love to have some volunteers that wanted to help because they're trying to get a, a grant right now to buy their own kayaks, so the school will have them. Anyway, it's um, a great article, and um, I'm sure calling the Tremont Consolidated School in Tremont, they could give you information. Great. Carol, thanks. I know you're a regular listener. Thanks so much for calling in you're this welcome. morning. And that's, and that's what I like about WERU. We, we ask a question and people call with the answers. That's, that's <laughs> just great. I do believe we have, we, we have another call. Let's take that call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Elise calling from Liberty, and I wanted to contribute our story from our little uh, school in the Liberty area. We put a greenhouse up about 10 years ago to have an outdoor learning laboratory for the, the kids. It's a K through 5 school. And it's been an interesting experience um, trying to figure out how to get the parent volunteers who are very excited about it 
to dovetail with the teachers who often have very limited time and sometimes experience with working with, say, growing things or doing experiments with insects or whatever. So we've had some fits and starts trying to work that out. But I'd, I'd say that with patients, it comes, and the teachers are starting to really see the value and of the lessons to be learned and also that um, some of the kids who have a really hard time sitting still for lessons, for example, do great turning compost or, you know, digging holes in the dirt and those sort of physical activities that really help them get their energy out. Um, and the other thing I wanted to contribute is that it, in the days of constrained budgets, it's really easy to go on very inexpensive field trips to local farms and just establish those working relationships ongoing with the, the closest farms to the school. So we're excited about developing that. Thanks for the show. I've enjoyed it, and I look forward to hearing more about this subject. Great. Thanks, Elise, for calling from Liberty. Um, those those natural connections, wherever you, you kind of look out your window and you say, what's out there? If there's a farm out there, that's a great place to do environmental education, environmental literacy. Um, we're going to start wrapping up, but uh, Kevin, um, any any thoughts on, on some of what our callers have been talking about? Um, I look at this effort as, as being more than just the K-12 mm. program. And, and you mentioned senior colleges. There's many opportunities for those that want to volunteer, want to participate. Um, it, it's, it's, sometimes it seems like all of the focus is on the, the formalized system. And if you look at how many years people live, there's great opportunities beyond 12th grade. So I, I, I think that's an important point to, to bring up. And there's many opportunities. You know, I think everybody has mentioned some of the opportunities that any, anybody that wants to get involved could participate in. It could be senior college. It could be, um, it, it could be in one of the state parks volunteering. It could be in many different areas. There's a great example of maybe a, 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 a formal school partnership and the community partnership down in the Topsom area, the Cadence River Education Alliance, where there, there are formalized environmental education programs that take the students out to a 200-acre preserve. And many community volunteers right from the Highlands Center, but other in, in the community come out and participate. They could be tour guides. They also have, they could be retired community uh, uh, college professors where they're sharing their own life experience with the students and with the, the community in general. So I, I view the opportunities for participation as endless. Great. Um, if you, each of you could list um, the some contact information uh, for uh, list the main education um, uh, environmental education association website list those contacts and then close with um, what inspires you what um, you know what do you hope for out of this this whole um, wonderful collaborative effort can we start with you linda sure um the main environmental education association our email address i mean our website address is meeassociation.org and we will be having links on that to all of um, the information about the Maine Environmental Literacy Plan. Right now, a lot of that is on the Maine Audubon website, but you can get to it through us. Um, we also will be having lists of some of the comments that the people have made at these dialogues. We, will, we are typing those up and getting those ready right now, and they will be up on the website. So people who haven't attended can read that. Also, they have the opportunity to go to the website and comment 
on uh, what was being done. So there's a lot of opportunities. And um, so, what inspires you? What inspires me? Um, well, I just um, just I love being at the Scarborough Marsh, and I love seeing the birds and just um, being out there. And um, just every day, you don't know what's going to come. And um, I guess that wonder. So that's that's great um, inspiration for both a teacher and for a student. Of Definitely. all ages, as, uh, as Kevin said. Uh, Kara, what, uh, what uh, information you want to share and then mm -hmm. what inspires you? Um, well, the Environmental Literacy Plan information is being hosted on the Maine Audubon website. So that's www.maineaudubon, all one word, M-A-I-N-E-A-U-D-U-B-O-N.org. Um, there you can find a video, an audio, a survey, a whole bunch of information. So um, that would be the easiest contact. And then if you want to learn more, there's contact information for Anita and I. Um, the most inspiring thing about the environmental literacy, I think, well, environmental literacy or environmental education may have very long roots, and, and we talked early in the show about bringing a bunch of um, older ideas or, or things that have been present for a long time to, to bear in the current time. Um, we're not talking about 1970s environmental education. We're talking about how can education address current um, issues that communities face, whether it's around transportation or other issues. I think for me, I, I like to envision new schools we built with gardens. New schools will educate, just the building on its own will educate about all the systems where water comes from, where trash goes. Mm, or forests, right? Yes. <laughs> good, good segue. Um, yes, anybody can get additional information on the park systems, Department of Conservation, Maine Forest Service, Geology, Natural Areas. Just go into Google, type in Department of Conservation or Maine State Parks, Maine Forest Service, and you'll get right to our website. Right. And and what inspires me is is many things. I, I love seeing somebody's light bulb, light bulb come on. It could be a student, it could be an adult, and also I have two grandkids that still, they're, they're four and six, and they, they talk about balsam fir and sweet fern, the way that they <laughs> smell. So that, that's a great inspiration. That's great. All the, all the senses there. Yep. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Next month, uh, June, July 9th, Natalie Springle from Sea Grant will be talking with folks about ferry service in Maine and their impacts on conservation uh, uh, communities in Maine. Our theme music is a medley from Cornac on a Balnein House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests. Um, we had by phone Anita Bernhardt with the Maine Department of Education. Linda Woodward is here with us um, from the Maine Environmental Education Association. Kevin Duran from the Maine Forest Service, Department of Conservation. And Kara Wildrick, Director of Education at Maine Audubon. Thanks to our, uh, those who called in with your wonderful questions and comments. Thanks to our underwriters, which include Maine Audubon. Uh, thanks for Joel Mann for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits.